Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, As the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Please do turn to that passage if you didn't just a moment ago. Sometimes you just want to listen, but it will also be good to have them open in front of you or open on an app if, you, if you'd like to do it that way. Um, I was going to remind you that we are sharing the Lord's Supper this morning. So hopefully if you're here in the room, you received one of these little cups when you came in. If we missed you, we will bring you one uh, when we get to that part of the service. So we'll, this has the bread and the juice in it. Uh, if you're joining us at home, they moved the camera. Where'd it go? <laughs> if you're joining us at home, um, we're uh, thrilled you're with us today. and We would invite you to do the same. Uh, you don't have these little cups, but just go get some juice and uh, some kind of cracker or bread and uh, any fruit of the vine and be able to, uh, to share with us uh, in the communion uh, when we get to it later at the Lord's Supper. So let me pray and uh, ask for the Lord's help with the passage we heard just a moment ago. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for... Uh, for the time in worship we've had, the time of fellowship, and just uh, seeing so much uh, joyful greetings, and people having serious conversations, and sober conversations, and um, fun conversations, just so much going on before, and, and then to be able to gather and to, to, to praise you, what a joy, what a, um, what a privilege to confess our need for you, to, to proclaim your worthiness. And now we come to a passage that... Uh, is uh, really a crucial one for, for us as believers. Uh, not that any of your word isn't, but, but such a central concept here this morning. I pray that you'd help me to clearly communicate, help me to get out of the way so that together all of us who are hearing this sermon can hear what you have for us today, God. Uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And this we ask in the name of our rock and our redeemer, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, they say that the clothes make the man. Uh, I'm not sure I totally agree, but but I can see where sometimes anyway, that that saying that you've probably heard, I I can see where sometimes that saying is true. For example, if you see a man wearing street clothes, you don't really know much about him, right? He he could be anybody. He could do anything. Uh, But if you saw that same man wearing a police uniform, now you know something about him, right? There's, there's, in that sense, yeah, the clothes 
make the man, or, or at least they tell you something about him. And so if you saw that man in a police uniform, well, I suppose he could be on his way to a costume party, but, but, but more likely, uh, he's a trustworthy person. He's, uh, he takes public service seriously. He's got lots of training. He's someone you could go to for help. You could, you know, ask for directions, or if you felt in danger, you could ask him for help. And so in that sense, I suppose the clothes do make the man, or at least help you understand him. And you could say the same thing, of course, about a woman. I, I start with a man because the sayings, the clothes make the man, but it's equally true for women. If you saw a, a woman on the street and she had a sweatshirt and jeans, you don't really know anything about her. You know, maybe her favorite team is on the front of the sweatshirt, but that's about it. But, but if you saw that same woman in hospital scrubs and she had a stethoscope around her neck, now you know some things, right? You know she's probably a doctor and likes to help people. She's had lots of training. Maybe she works long hours, right? So, so you can learn something from the clothing, right? You can, say, you can see why they say sometimes that the clothes make the man. The passage we just heard, though, turns that saying on its head, right? I don't know if they had a saying like that in ancient Rome, but if they did, Paul's going to turn it on its head because this passage does not say that the clothes make the man. This passage says that the man makes the clothes. The man makes the clothes. And what I mean by that is who we are on the inside, who we are in that inner man, that inner woman, determines how we clothe ourselves spiritually on the outside. That's what Paul says in this passage. Now, let me take a moment to review for you where we are. As most of you know, anyway, we are working through Ephesians this fall, the second half of Ephesians. We did the first half of Ephesians last fall. And so we picked up in uh, chapter 4 a couple weeks ago. And I pointed out a couple weeks ago that, that the first verse of chapter 4, so Ephesians 4, 1, I believe sets the tone for the whole rest of the book. It's, it's the rest, everything else uh, in the book is pegged to, or is really just an, an explication of what he says in verse 1. And so in verse 1, he, he makes this statement, he tells us to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling, and the rest of the book, I mean, it's not the only thing that's going on, but I think it's a theme that ties the rest of the book together, is that we're called to walk worthy of our calling in Jesus Christ. And so we're, we're looking at what this worthy walk looks like. And so two weeks ago, this worthy walk, is, it means unity. As followers of Jesus Christ, we stick together. We, we, we have a, a Christ-centered unity. Uh, and then last week, we talked about maturity. So spiritual maturity is this key thing. It was verses 7 through, uh, through 16 in last week's passage. So, so worthy walk is a walk that's growing in spiritual maturity. In today's passage, the verses we're looking at now, we learn that this worthy walk also includes transformation transformation. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. According to this passage, when we give our lives to Jesus, the way we live needs to change. It changes, right? The hundreds of people are giving their hearts to Christ through this Will Graham thing. Uh, their lives need to change. And it's true for us too. When we give our lives to Jesus, our, our life needs to change. And, and I want to stress this morning, because Paul stresses it, that, that this isn't an option, right? It's not optional, it, uh, kind of giving your life to Jesus and then staying exactly the same, that's actually not on the table. If we're saved by faith, uh, by, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, then, then the way we live must change. And this is what he says in verse 22. I'm actually going to, uh, we're not going to go, um, we're going to cover all the verses this morning, but we're going to take them out of order. I want you to look ahead to verse 22. 
If you just look at verse 22 for a second, verse 22, Paul says uh, that Jesus teaches us, reaching back to verse 21, teaches us to put off the old self. So verse 21, you were taught in him to put off your old self. And then in its place, uh, Jesus teaches us to put on the new self. You see that in verse 24. You were taught to put off your old self, verse 22, and put on the new self. And the main verbs there, put on, put off, they're both clothing words. Right? So if you and I were, uh, lived in the first century and we were Greek-speaking peoples, and almost everybody was at that time, uh, there in the Roman Empire anyway, uh, we would use these two words to talk about the daily exercise of taking clothes off and putting clothes on. It's this, it's that literally, that's what the words mean. If you're in a literal context, it means to take off and to put on. And what Paul does here in this morning's passage is he takes that universal experience, right? It's a universal human experience. Whether you're living in, you know, the Arctic or in the tropics or somewhere in between, we all clothe ourselves. Paul takes that universal human experience and and he uses it as a metaphor for spiritual change, right? That's that's what this is about. He's not talking about physical clothing when he says take off, put on. Uh, He's talking about how we live on the outside how we clothe ourselves, if I could put it in air quotes like that. And, and what he's telling us in this, this passage is that when you come to Jesus, you need to change your clothes. We, we need to change the way we live. And so our outline this morning is real simple. Uh, first, we're going to talk about what it means to put off the old self or the old set of clothing. He kind of is going to mix the metaphors here. Uh, and we're gonna, then we're going to talk about what it means to put on the new self. So put off the old self, put on the new self. That's our, our outline this morning. So we start with the, uh, the old, put off the old self. What does it mean? Well, according to this passage, putting off the old self means that we must get rid of the old way of living. We got to get rid of it. Right? It's, it's the grand uh, goal of the human life. Is to, is, it's called sanctification. Get rid of the old way of looking, living. Look again at verse 22. Uh, so Paul says, uh, fuller sentence now, he says you, that we were taught in Christ to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. All right, so that's verse 22. Now, before I develop that more, explain it more, let me situate it in its context in Ephesians. Because remember, Ephesians is a distinct book. Sometimes when you do the kind of study we do, you, you run the risk of disconnecting everything from everything that came before. But it's all connected. And so Paul said something back in chapter 2, which drives what he says now in chapter 4. Back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we learned that we, ha- we were dead and now we're alive. Right? That's chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You were dead in your sins, and now you have a new life. And so uh, he says that, chapter 1, um, excuse me, chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following in the course of this world. Uh, before we came to Jesus, we were dead in our sins, and we lived like it. You could tell. You could tell. God would look at the way we lived. Spiritually minded people would look at the way we lived and said, yeah, you were dead in your sins. But then God does this wondrous miracle. We call it regeneration. We call it being born again. Uh, God saved us by grace through our faith in Jesus, and then we were brought to life. God brought us to life, uh, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But, you were dead, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so we were dead, but now we're alive. We're alive in Jesus Christ. And so when he talks in chapter 4 about the old self, 
That's what he's talking about. He's not just dropping in a term here. He's talking about that reality from chapter 2, that we were dead in our sins. So we're going we're gonna to go look at that in more detail in a moment. But look at what he says in verse 22. So now back to our passage today. Look at what he says about that old self, that old dead self. Look what he says. He says, it's unsuitable for us. That old suit is unsuitable. If you think in terms of clothing, the old way of life doesn't fit anymore. So he's not using death language so much now. Now he's using this clothing metaphor. That old way of life is like an old set of clothes that doesn't fit. Let me ask, do you have any clothes that don't fit anymore? Uh, if, if you're a younger person, it, it might be because you've gone through a growth spurt, right? That, I remember that would happen with our kids. It happens to everybody's kids, or else we'd all still be tiny, right? You know, you, in April, you got that pair of pants, and you put it away because the summer comes, and in September, you get it back out, and you put them on, and they're three inches too short because you grew, right? And so those clothes don't fit you anymore. If you're a little older, uh, like, like myself, uh, it tends to be a width thing. It's not height so much anymore. Uh, and, and, you know, I won't ask for a show of hands, but, but many of us ha- know exactly what that's like. We have clothing that doesn't fit so much anymore. And, and that's the picture here. Uh, Paul says, except he's not talking about our, our physical clothing, he's talking about that old way of life. It's like a pair of, it's like an old pair of, of, of jeans that just doesn't fit anymore. You've, you're, you've outgrown them, is very much the idea here. Now, someone will say, well, what is it about it that doesn't fit? What do you mean it doesn't fit? Uh, Well, he tells us, it's there in verse 22, it doesn't fit because it's corrupt and deceitful. (laughs) He says that. Uh, The old self is corrupt through deceitful desires. And so that old self, that old way of living, that old set of clothes uh, is corrupt and deceitful. And, you know, we we meditate on that a little bit. And I don't know about about you, but I, I find myself asking, well, how corrupt? How, how bad is it really that I have to get rid of it? I, I've got some clothes that I wear sometimes that are, are a little ill-fitting, but I still like them, right? <laughs> you ever do that? You know, so, so what are we talking about here? Is it, is it, is it just that they're a little rusty? I have to go with that, you know, corruption. Uh, it's the idea of rust. I've driven cars, maybe you have too, that had some rust on them, but I wasn't ready to, to get a new one yet. And so you can drive and, you know, it's got a little corruption on it, a little rust, but it's still usable. Is that what Paul is saying? Or is he saying it's rotten to the core? You know, it's like a, a rancid piece of fruit that you just don't even want to, you know, you don't even want it in the kitchen, let alone in your salad. Which one is it like? And the answer in this text is that it's the rotten piece of fruit. It's not just a little corrupt and you can still drive it. It's rotten to the core. And that's why it's so ill-fitting. That's why it's so inappropriate for us to live that way. Uh, and, and this is where verses 17, 18, and 19 come in. So I told you I was taking the verses out of order. I think that, verses, uh, that verse 22 and 23 are, are the central idea. What verses 17, and 19, 17 through 19 do is they help us understand how corrupt so uh, let, let's look at those verses now. I'll, uh, I'll jump back to 17. So he starts out, he says, Now I say this... Oh, no, that's the previous... Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, now I say... Now, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So let me just stop there for a moment. A few things to notice about that opening, that opening sentence that he has there. First, this is a strongly worded command. He actually uses this kind of um, solemn declaration in the beginning of verse 17. He doesn't say, I swear, but it's, it's that kind of thing like that we might say. You know, this is, this is important. I say and testify. 
He could say the same thing with only one of those words, but he repeats them. It's two different words to, to, to say, this is serious. This is a serious declaration I'm making to you here, he says. And then he, what is it? What's the serious declaration? Well, it's the command that follows. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, Paul writes. I said this a moment before, before when I was uh, introducing, but it bears repeating. What he's talking about here is not an option, right? It's not an optional thing in the Christian life. It's a necessary thing. He uses the word must. He uses this strong negative, no longer. And so what that means is that when we're talking about putting off the old self, getting rid of the old way of living, it's a necessary part of the Christian life. You can't live the Christian life without taking this passage seriously and, and the things that are said in this passage. We have to take them seriously. And, and it seems to me that's probably why, because he tells us it's so serious, this is why Paul expands it. Because he could just drop it there, right? If you think about it, he could just say, don't walk the way the Gentiles walk anymore. Instead, do this. But, but, but what he does instead is he takes another two and a half verses to tell us how the Gentiles walk, right? And, uh, and so he doesn't just say, don't live like the world, he actually describes how the world lives. And let me just state, uh, explain that. So when he says the Gentiles, he means the worldly system or the way um, unsaved people, if we could use that term, uh, live their lives. So he's not doing the whole Gentile-Jew distinction. That's not what this passage is about. He's using Gentiles in the sense that that word means the nations. So the world. I'm, gonna, and I'm actually going to use that word as we go through this. Don't live the way the world lives is, is what he, he means when he says don't live the way the Gentiles live. And, and so he goes on to describe it. And here's another thing to keep in mind as we look at his description. He's reminding us how we used to live. And that's really important in this passage. Uh, in verse 22, he calls it our former way of life. In verse 22, he does not let me get away with distancing myself from verses 17, 18, and 19. You know, he won't let me get away with that. He says, that's how you used to live. That's your former way of life. And so this is one of those passages. It's not there for you and me to scold the world. It's for you and me to remember how we used to live and realize it's not appropriate anymore. That, that's what's going on here. So, so with those uh, pieces in mind, let me, let me read those verses again. And Emmett read them, read them for us before. Let me, re let me read them again. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. How corrupt was our old way of life? Well, to borrow a phrase from a famous poet, let me count the ways. Because that's what, what Paul does here. He doesn't number them, but he, but he does give us a list. And there's actually eight and I'm going to have to move through it relatively quickly, but, uh, but there are eight things here that he reminds us about our former way of life, that old self, and there's not a good one in the bunch. They're all terrible. They're all terrible. So let me just take you through these. Um, what, what was our old self like? What is it we're putting off and getting rid of? First of all, we, we had an empty worldview. Our view of the world, of existence, was, was empty. He says, uh, when we walked as the Gentiles walked, we were walking in the futility of our minds. That's the first thing he says. You see it there at the very, it's the last phrase in verse 17. In the futility uh, of, of, our, of their minds. 
And so what, was, what were we before? Well, we had an empty, meaningless, purposeless understanding of existence. But there, was no, there was no meaning to it all. It was empty. And the word he uses means empty or vain. Uh, we, we drank the Kool-Aid, all of it, to the bottom of the glass. They, they told us, in just one example, they told us that, you know, humans are just animals, right? We're just animals descended from apes, and, and we believed it, right? We, we drank it all in, and, and, and we followed it to its logical conclusion, right? We'd f- tase that right out. I mean, wh- what's the point? What's, what's the point? If, if humans are just another animal, who cares how we live? Why does it matter what we do sexually or what, how we treat life or uh, the weak or any of these things? Why does it matter if we're just another animal? Right? Why, why does anything matter if matter is all that there is? And that was us. That was, that was our, what our old self was like. We walked, he says, in the futility of our minds. It was, it was empty. It was vain, the way we thought about the world. Second, our, uh, our understanding was darkened darkened understanding. That's the one he points to at the beginning of verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding. They being the world, which we used to be part of. Uh, They're darkened, like the lights are off. They're darkened in their understanding. Uh, Paul actually uses the same wording. It's not exact copy, but it's the same uh, ideas in Romans chapter 1. In fact, if you wanted to read an expanded version of this morning of verses 17 through 19, go read the second half of Romans chapter 1, because Romans chapter 1 is basically kind of, like I say, expanded Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Same language. Romans 1, 21 uh, talking about the world, rebellion against God. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, same concept, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their hearts were darkened. That's what our old self was like. All the lights, they weren't just off, they were burned out. They were burned out, and, and we were just groping our way through the darkness. We, 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 we maybe didn't realize it, but that's what we were doing. We were groping through the darkness. Dark, darkened understanding. Third, what else were we like? Well, we were separated from life. Separated from life. Uh, verse 18, in the middle there, the world is alienated from the life of God. Now, if you think about that, so that's fundamentally, he's talking about that, uh, back to that idea of being dead in our sins. Ephesians 2, 1, we were dead. So there's that sense in which we were, we were dead. But, but if, you, if you think on what that means, and what that means theologically, to be alienated from the life of God, what does it mean? Well, really what that is is hell, right? That, so what he's saying here is that our lives before Jesus were a preview of hell. Because that's what hell is. We always think of hell as with the hell fires and the brimstone, and that's the Bible's description of it. But what really what hell is, is it is a place of separation from God. It is, it is eternal separation from the life of God. And so what Paul says here is, what he basically when he says they're alienated from the life of God, the, the, the idea is that the world doesn't have to wait to die to experience hell. This life can be hell. This life is hell if you don't know Jesus. Right? That's why people talk that way sometimes. Oh, my life's a living hell. Yeah, you're right. It is if you don't know Jesus. And that was us. That was us. It's this separation from the hope and the encouragement and the peace that is offered to us in and through Jesus Christ. No wonder so many are so discouraged and so hopeless. But that was us. We were alienated. Number four on, on our enumerated list here, number four is we were spiritually ignorant. Spiritually ignorant. 
Uh, that's the next one here. Uh, he says the nations are alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that's in them. Because of the ignorance that's in them. Now, we hear the word ignorance, and we think, um, you know, without knowledge or, or even stupid, if I can use that, that, that word. But that's not really what this is saying. Uh, lost people know stuff, right? They know stuff. They know lots of stuff, right? They know lots and lots. There's some really smart people out there. Ask some of them. will tell you how smart they are. But, but spiritually, they're ignorant. That, that's what Paul is talking about here. And so they know stuff, but it's the wrong stuff. That's what this means when it says uh, that they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. He doesn't mean they're stupid. He means they know, they know stuff, but it's the wrong stuff. And so it, it's like being trapped on a desert island, and the only book you have, you've got one book with you, and it's a gourmet cookbook. Right? I mean, that's it. You got, you're on a desert island, nobody's with you, you've got very few supplies, and you've got a nice, thick, gourmet cookbook. That might make for some interesting daydreams while you're starving, but it's not going to help you. You'd be much better off, you know, that's knowledge, but it's the wrong knowledge. You'd be much better off with a book on wilderness survival or maybe how to build a boat, you know, something, something like that. And that was us. That was us before Christ. That was our life without Christ. We knew stuff. We knew plenty of stuff, but it was the wrong stuff. We were spiritually ignorant. The fifth thing Paul says here about us is that we were hard-hearted hard-hearted. Their ignorance, he says, is due to, where's this ignorance coming from? Why do they know the wrong stuff? It's due to the hardness of the heart. And I think in in just following the logic with each phrase as he lays it out, I think what he's saying is because of their hard-heartedness, they wouldn't listen to the truth. We wouldn't listen. And so people would share the good news with us. They'd say, hey, come to this, this, uh, if, this thing. There's going to be a concert, and people are, you know, the guy's going to talk about the Christian marriage me- message. Why don't you come with me? We'll get some hot dogs beforehand. It'll be great. We, we wouldn't listen. And they invited us to church, and they said, hey, it's Christmas. Why don't you come and, and you know, celebrate Christmas with us? And, and, and they wouldn't listen. And, and they didn't, we'd invite, we were invited to Bible studies, and we wouldn't listen. Why? Because our hearts were stone. That's this picture. We were, they were encased in rock, and so we were hardened. We were hardened to the things of God. Sixth, we were therefore emotionally calloused. Uh, these, these all follow on each other, don't they? Uh, they have become callous, Paul says, at the beginning of verse 19. 19 he uses that word for you know, something to be calloused or hardened, like you might think of calluses on your hands. Uh, when I was a little kid, uh, our, our family heated our home by burning wood in the winter. It's kind of a, a thing we did a lot of the winters, I remember. Um, we grew up in upstate New York, and it gets cold up there. And, and so we, we had oil heat, but we'd supplement with wood. And uh, that means I would spend a lot of time stacking wood. Uh, you know, they always say that about wood. Wood, wood heats you twice, right? <laughs> it's, it's the work you do, and then when you burn it. And, and it was just kind of a big part of my childhood. Every summer we would put in, and it was like four cords of wood, if I remember right. So that's a lot of wood. My father would split it, and, and then I would, I would do a lot of the stacking, and he'd, he'd do some stacking too. And, and I was thinking about this. You know, sometimes I would get splinters. I would get splinters on my, on my, my hands, and they'd hurt. <laughs> they hurt quite a bit, and I was kind of a, a, a windy little kid sometimes, and, and so uh, I'd, I'd have to stop. I'd be like, ah, time out. Ow, ow, I got a splinter, you know? <laughs> and, and I'd have to go off and, and deal with my splinter. My father, though, had calluses on his hands. 
And, you know, he's one of those guys, and a lot of you are guys like this, too. He worked a lot with his hands, and, and, and so he had these calluses. And so he would get the splinters, too, but they wouldn't bother him, right? In fact, he might not even notice he had one. He might see hours later, oh, what's that? You know, and he'd you know, pull it out, or maybe he'd have to get tweezers if it was deeper. But, but it wouldn't bother him the way it would bother me, because he had calluses on his hands. That's a good thing when you're stacking wood, but it's not good when it comes to the way we treat people. It's not good at all. A calloused soul is not good. But Paul says that's how we were. That's how the world is. That's how we were. Uh, we, are, are, we were emotionally calloused. We didn't feel what we should have been feeling. And so we didn't care. Right? We didn't care about the plight of our fellow man. We didn't care about people. Or if we did care, we only cared because of you know, what we could get from them. Uh, we embraced the culture of death so prominent these days. We tweeted our abortion. We treated violence as a form of entertainment. That's what the old self does. It's emotionally callous. It's really hardened, dead to, 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 to things that should hurt or, or, or fill us with joy for that matter. So emotionally callous, that's the next one. Seventh, it's a tough list, isn't it? Seventh, we were therefore given over to sensuality. Given to sensuality, he says. And, and it flows directly out of the previous one because that's what happens when you can't feel anything. I think this explains so much of what's going on in our world today. When you can't feel anything, you start looking for ways to feel something. If you're calloused, you, 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 you know you're supposed to be feeling it, so you go look for ways. And so you chase, and, and the ancients were the same as us, uh, you chase sensual experiences. Having become callous, Paul says, they have given themselves up to sensuality. And this word he uses, sensuality, it's, it's both general and specific. Uh, general, the general way this word's used is it's um, like narcissistic. I mean, there is a word for narcissism, but it, it's basically self-centeredness, um, just kind of for what you experience. It's, it's that kind of the general sense of the word. The specific way the word is often used, and I think it's what he intends here, is how we often think of it. It's like sexual sin. That, that's the way he's, he's, I think, just in context and what he's going to talk about in the next section. Uh, that's really what he's talking about here. And so this word given to sensuality, he's really referring to various forms of sexual perversion, to, to use a description that wouldn't get very far these days in most contexts, but that would be what the biblical word's describing, sexual perversion. Any sexual um, pursuit or pleasure outside of that sacred boundary line of, of marriage between a man and a woman. That, anything outside of that is going to fall into this category of, of sensuality. And he says, that's what we were, we were like. We were giving ourselves over to, to the pursuit of, of pleasure to the pursuit of feeling because of the callousness that, that he talked about before. And then this seventh one leads directly to the last one. The last one kind of brings it all together and puts the bow on it, an ugly bow, but it's a bow nonetheless. It's that we were therefore morally insatiable. Morally in, insatiable. Uh, verse 19, at the end of the verse, he says that the, that the world, this world pursuing sensuality is greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. You see, there's a, there's a problem. <laughs> there's a problem with trying to find satisfaction in sensual, worldly pleasure. And the problem with it is that sensual, worldly pleasure never satisfies. It's the nature of the thing. We always want more. 
We always want more. They're even discovering this with brain chemistry, the whole way dopamine works in our brains. We always want more. And, and that's what he says there. They became greedy. It's, it's the idea of covetousness. Uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And, and that's how it is with these kind of, especially these, these sins of the flesh. The flesh. We, we always want one more. One more sexual conquest, one more nude picture, one more video, one more beer, one more buzz, one more high, one more hit, one more petty theft because it, it gives us a rush to get away with it. It comes out different ways in different people, but, but whatever it is uh, uh, that a given person's chasing after, the point here is that it, it never satisfies. It's never enough. We're, we're, we become insatiable. We always want more. And he says that's what we were like. That's what we were like before Jesus. We were given over to the greedy pursuit of every kind of impurity. Now, like I said, it's a rough list. What do we do with it? We get rid of it. That's what this passage is telling us. I spent time on it because I felt like it was important to, to really wrap our brains around what it is we're getting rid of. But that's it. We need to get rid of it. That's the message to the modern church. Again, I said it before, a passage like this one is not here for us. To, it's not here to beat up on the world so that Christians can feel superior. Kind of, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, you better not be doing it now, but we used to. Right? That's what it's, it's here to tell us, that, that to remind us that's what we used to do and to stop doing it now. I mean, that's the language he uses. It, it, this, this is here to remind us to stop living like the world. Put off the old self. It does not fit you anymore. Now, that brings us to the other half, the other half of, of this changed life that he's talking about. Uh, get rid of the old way and put on the new. Put on the new way of living or the new self. That's what he calls this new set of clothing, the new self. And so let's talk about what that looks like to put on the new self. Uh, what it looks like is embracing the Christ way of living. Embrace the Christ way of living. Get rid of the old way and embrace the Christ way. That's what this passage, and actually next week's passage too. So um, a lot, I'm, I'm going to set us up. The rest of my time this morning, I'm really just kind of setting us up for next week because that's how Paul does it with verses 22 through 24. Uh, but, but this is the Christ way, and this is what we're supposed to embrace. So let me read uh, verses 20 through 24, hear them as a, uh, as a bunch, and then make a few observations. So he says, verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard, and I think it's a, um, he assumes that we have, uh, that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What were you taught? Verse 22, and there's actually three verbs in a row here. This is what we were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. We talked about that. And here's what else he taught you, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And verse 24, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So verse 20, he says, that is not the Jesus way. That's what verse 20, he, 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 verse 20, he looks back at verses 17, 18, and 19, and he says, that's not for us. That's not what Jesus told us to do. So there's this sharp contrast, and it's a hopeful contrast. That's not us. That's not, those clothes don't fit us. Uh, something else that stands out here, uh, and, and I think this, this goes to the issue of motivation. All right, this right here, um, it, it feels a little bit like it's off point, but it's actually central to what we're talking about. Something that stands out in verse 20. Look what he says. He says, that's not the way you learned Christ. 
He doesn't say that's not the way you learned about Christ. It's not, it, what he does say is that it's, it's not the way you learned Christ. And the language he uses is relational language. It's the idea of learning a person, getting to know uh, somebody in person. Um, I was, uh, one of the commentators I was looking at this week helped me in my own thinking on this. guy's name is Warren Wearsby. You might recognize his name. He's a pastor for a bunch of years, wrote a pretty accessible commentary series called the B Series. And uh, he has a, a short commentary on Ephesians. And he was describing this point, and, and he made this point that it's about the personal relationship with Jesus, that that's what drives this whole thing. And, and he compared it to uh, knowing a person from history. Right, so he compared knowing Jesus to knowing a historical figure. And he used Churchill, and I think Churchill's a good one, so I'm going to just borrow from Wearsby here. Uh, you know, Churchill, Winston Churchill, hero of World War II from, uh, from the British and really from, from everyone who cares about what's right, uh, Winston Churchill, uh, there's a lot of information about the guy. He's actually one of the most studied figures in history, other than like Jesus and maybe the Apostle Paul, something like that. Uh, I, I believe it's thousands of books have been written about Churchill. Documentaries have been made about Churchill. You actually, because he's in the modern era, you can go watch film with Churchill. You can read documents. You can read things that he wrote. Uh, there's lots of information that you and I could ex access about Winston Churchill. Okay? But... We cannot know Churchill personally because he's dead. Right? Winston Churchill, he, he died. So we can know about Churchill. We could become experts in Churchill, but we can't know Winston Churchill because he's passed away. But Jesus is alive. So why the resurrection is so important. Jesus is alive, which means we can know Jesus. We can know him personally, relationally, intimately through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And so, you know, that's what he means when he says you've, you've learned Christ. He's talking about this personal relationship. And, and this really does go to the issue of, of motivation. All this stuff we're talking about, we talk about putting off that, those old things that we went through. This isn't, it, it's not legalism. Right? What we're talking about today, and most of the time when we talk about these sorts of issues, it's not a matter of rules to follow, it's a matter of a person to know. And that's what he says in verse 20. That's not how you learned Jesus. You learned Jesus, and now he's going to tell us how we did learn Jesus. All right? And so that's what you get in those last two verses and then beyond. Uh, he tells us how we did learn Jesus, and he says three things about it. Three things about the Christ way of living. I'm just going to point them out, and as I say, we'll, we'll touch on these in, in different ways future weeks. But three things he tells us. First, he tells us the source. The source. Oh, there it is. Uh, the, the source of this new way of living. And the source of this new way of living, new way of living is what's happening inside of us. And he says it in verse 23. We are being renewed in the spirit of our minds. And he uses a passive verb there. We call it a divine passive. Make no mistake on who's doing the renewing. It's God, the Holy Spirit who lives within us when we uh, surrender our lives to Christ, when we come to him by faith. Uh, this miracle happens, the regeneration. We are brought, what was dead is brought to life. Who does that miracle? It's the Holy Spirit who now comes to live within us and he takes up residence. And he's, he doesn't, you know, just like you might do if you moved into a really dirty house, you're going to start cleaning. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He's cleaning, right? He's renewing our minds on the inside. And so what, what that verse 23 means is it's, where, what's the source of this new self, this, of embracing the Christ way of living? It's a transformation that starts on the inside 
and overflows to the outside. And so this is not about you and me making ourselves good. I don't think that. Don't ever say, well, I need to make myself good and then I can, I can come to Jesus. Or I need to clean up my act and then I can come to Jesus. That's, that's not... That's, that's not it. That's not it. If the history of human, uh, hum, humanity and human religion in particular shows anything, it shows that we cannot make ourselves good. And when we try, we end up making it actually worse, right? All the things people say about, uh, about religion without Christ. It's, it's, it just makes things worse many times. It's, it's like the old, setting, uh, the old saying about putting lipstick on a pig, right? It, it might look real pretty, nice bright red maybe, and glossy, shiny, but it's still on a pig. That's what our, our good works are like apart from Jesus. And so the source isn't you and me kind of mustering enough willpower to be good people. The source is the inner transformation that the Holy Spirit is effecting inside of us as, as we walk with him. So he tells us about the source. Second, Paul tells us about the nature, uh, the nature of this Christ way of living. What, what's it like? What is it, what is it about? I suppose I could use the word purpose there. But yeah, purpose is better. We'll change it. Uh, the, the source and the purpose, the purpose is to recreate us after the likeness of God. So he's making us new into what, right? What's the blueprint that he's building on? Well, the blueprint is Jesus. He's recreating us into the likeness of God. It says that in the middle of verse 24, this new self is created after the likeness of God. Paul says it again in Romans, Romans 8, 29, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Same idea, Romans 8, 29, uh, today's passage, uh, it's the same idea. God is changing our lives, not just to make us good citizens, we'll probably be good citizens as a side effect, but it's not about making us good citizens, it's about making us more and more and more and more and more like Jesus. That's God's purpose, that's his agenda. And that's why, actually, I've been calling it the Christ way of living. I wanted to stress that. We're not talking about the ethical way of living or the moral way of living. Paul's talking about the Christ way of living. And so that's the the purpose or the nature of this new self. And then the third thing uh, that he tells about here, it's the end of verse 24, it's the result. What's going to come out? What's going to come out of of, of pursuing the Christ way of living? Well, the result is, uh, put it up there, result is true righteousness and holiness. That's his description of it, true righteousness and holiness. You see those words there at the end of verse 24. Uh, I'm going to stop in just a moment, right? Uh, but the important thing to realize is that Paul doesn't stop, right? So if, you're, if your Bible is open or if you've got a Bible app, you can kind of scroll down a little further there. Uh, he keeps going. He's not going to move on to a new idea when we get to verse 25. I'm not going to read these verses, but what he does in the rest of chapter 4, and I actually think it, he's, he's going to swap his metaphor, but he's going to keep talking about it right into chapter 5 as well. Uh, what, he, what he's basically saying is, now let me show you what true righteousness and holiness looks like. And what he shows us is that it's exceedingly practical. All right, and so he's going to talk about honesty. I think it's in verse 25. He's going to talk about anger. He's going to talk about bitterness. He's going to talk about forgiveness. Uh, there's several things he's going to talk about there in the back half of that back part of of chapter 4. And his point is that righteousness and holiness are, they're not just nebulous concepts or theological words that we read. They are, as I I said it before, exceedingly practical. They are to be lived out. They're they're a walk. You've noticed how many times he uses the word walk in this passage. It's going to keep coming up as we get into the last two chapters. Uh, It's it's how we walk. It's practical. It's, It's how we live. 
And that's what he puts there. The, the embracing the Christ way of living and going after it will change. It starts on the inside, but it will change. It has to change the way we live on the outside. Well, I mentioned uh, Wearsby a few minutes ago, and uh, I, I just wanted to, he has one sentence that I thought was so great, and I wish I was smart enough to think this up, actually. I was like, oh, I, I wanted to steal his phrase, but I couldn't. Uh, but, but here's how he summarizes this passage. He says, this passage tells us to take off the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes. It's not great? I love Wiersbe. Take off the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes. And, and that's, that's really it right there. You know, that old way of life, we were dead in our trespasses. It's like we were a mummy wrapped in all these... these uh, you know, these wrappings, and, and, and like Lazarus, we need to take them off. Remember when Jesus says that to Lazarus? Lazarus, you're not dead anymore, so take off the grave clothes. Same thing is said to us. Take off the grave clothes. Don't live that old way anymore. Instead, what do we put on? We put on the grace clothes. We, we put on uh, this new life in Christ that we have. And like I say, we'll, we'll explore that more next week and in, in passages that follow. But uh, yeah, take off the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes. We're going to share the Lord's Supper in, uh, in just a moment now. And uh, before we do that, though, I, I, I want to remind you of that Ephesians 2 passage. I'm going to pray in just a moment. Before I pray, that Ephesians chapter 2 passage is so important to what we've talked about today. And, and I just want to be clear on this, about what it takes for this transformation to happen. What it takes is faith in Jesus Christ. It's, again, it's not willpower. It's not a stronger resolution to be a better person. It's, it's faith. It's believing in Jesus, trusting in him and him alone, his righteousness, his sacrifice for us on the cross. That's what saves us. Not our good works, not our connection to a church, none of those things. And that is what the Lord's Supper is about, as we eat a little piece of bread in, in a few minutes. That piece of bread reminds us that Jesus died in our place. He, the perfect sinless one, fully God and fully man, took our place on the cross, took the punishment that we deserved upon himself. And the cup will remind us of the same thing, that juice or wine that, that some drink uh, will remind us that he, he shed his blood. It wasn't a metaphor. The juice in the cup is a metaphor. This is a symbol. But what Jesus did wasn't a symbol. It was, it was actual, it was real, it was, it was the realest thing in, 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 in history because he did what needed to be done to, to, to take away our sin, to pay that penalty of our sin. But, but it's not just, it's a, it's, there's two parts to it. The other part in this transaction, if I can use that word, is that he then gives us his righteousness. So we talk about true righteousness and holiness. Those aren't, uh, again, they're not ginned up from within us. They're what Christ gives us as a gift. And so this is, he, really, he, he says, let me take your sin, and here, you can have my righteousness. That's what he does for every single one of us who puts our faith in Jesus. And that's what we're remembering as we come now to, to the table. Uh, would you pray with me, please? I'm going to pray, and then I'll have these guys pass out uh, cups for those who need them. Lord, we thank you for this gospel, this good news uh, of, of redemption, of salvation, of transformation, uh, you love us too much to leave us where we're at. Uh, you know better than we ever knew or will know how dead we were in our trespasses and sins. And you have brought us to life. And we praise you for that. We thank you for it. Lord, I want to just pray for anyone who's hearing these words in this room or elsewhere that does not 
hasn't, hasn't understood this before now, uh, hasn't embraced it, would you please open their eyes, Lord? Would you soften their heart? Would you remove the calluses uh, that they might respond to your good news? And, and I just pray you'd work in their, their heart to do that, that they would confess their sin to you and ask you to come and be the Lord of their life, to, to be their Savior and surrender themselves to you. Would you do that, please? And Lord, for the rest of us, those of us here who've done that already, just thank you. We bring nothing uh, to our salvation but our wretched sin. To, to, to paraphrase, uh, I think it was Jonathan Edwards, we bring nothing to the table but our own sin. And we just are so thankful to you for what you've done for us. We do turn from our sin, Lord. We, we had a time of confession before, and as we come now to, to the table, we would, uh, we would just carry on in that mindset. Uh, it's, it's not that we're perfect now. It's that we are forgiven in, forgiven in you. And you, uh, we, we, we receive that promise from 1 John chapter 1 that uh, if, if we have, conf- we have uh, confessed our sin to you, you are faithful and just to forgive us all unrighteousness. We, we lay hold of that promise. We lay claim to it in Jesus' name as we come to the table now. Amen. Well, for those of you who are uh, joining us, worshiping with us online, this is a great time to get that, the bread and uh, the juice that you have at home. Hopefully you, have, you, have, and you still have some time to get that. If you're here in the room and don't have one of these little cups and would like to partake this morning, could you just raise your hand? Maybe we got everybody today. Oh, we got one down here. Yeah. And we'll um, make sure you get, uh, get one of these. Um, we're, we're still using these, these uh, combo cups. And so there's a piece of bread in the top piece of cellophane here. And then there's juice underneath the foil that's We'll open those up in just a moment. And as you're getting those out and as they're handing them out, I, I just want to remind you that, that this is for believers. And so if, if you have not accepted Christ or you're, you're just pondering these things and you're not ready to take that step, uh, please, there's, you know, nobody's, nobody's looking at you. Um, I'm not even looking at you and I'm kind of looking at you. Um, no, your neighbor isn't looking at you. Your neighbor's looking to Jesus. So, so don't partake if this isn't represent what you believe. But if this represents what you believe, 